You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. Let's talk about mindset because I think that the first step to learning how to build your dream business is really telling yourself that you can and actually believing that you can do it. And I think we all agree that not everybody should be an entrepreneur. And so I would love to understand what you guys think makes a good entrepreneur in terms of their personality traits or the background experiences that they should have before starting a business. Why don't we start off with Yancey first this time? Yeah, I mean, it's such a different mindset, you know, being an employee versus versus an entrepreneur. You know, as an employee, you're kind of waiting for things to be done for you. And as an entrepreneur, you know, no, nothing happens uh, unless you do it. I mean, I remember I, I had a day job throughout the the pre-launch days of Kickstarter for like three years. Kickstarter was nights and weekends and more while well, I kept a day job. And, and the notion of quitting my day job to do this full time was a really scary thing because I, I had no financial security. And once I did it, I could feel this change in how I saw the world. And it was it was switching from, you know, kind of almost passively waiting for things to happen to instead just just feeling this compulsion that if I don't do it, it won't happen. If I don't do it, it will never happen. And it's like now that I'm on the other side of it, it's hard for even me to articulate how big a shift mindset shift that was. But I, I did feel that real change in how I saw the world. Thank you so much, Yancy, for sharing that. Mark, I'd love to hear your opinion in terms of the personality traits that make up a good entrepreneur and, and what qualities you think an entrepreneur should have before getting started. Well, and they don't necessarily need to have them before they get started. In fact, so it's hard not to dissect the question. I'll get to the answer in a second. But the most important thing is don't let anything get in the way of getting started. You know, the big danger is thinking I I'll fill in the blank. I have to quit school. I have to get a day, quit my day job. I've got to get a computer science degree. I need a certain skill. Anything you do which delays that start is a mistake. In fact, that actually probably goes into trait number one, which is this predisposition to action. I think the really defining characteristic of an entrepreneur is someone who kind of thinks less and does more, who does not go back and think about the problem and let's put together a task force and let's evaluate. They go, fuck it, let's just figure out if there's a quick, easy, cheap way we can test this. Let's try this. Let's just jump in. I'm not going to stand here looking, trying to figure out how to see around the corner. I'm just going to take a few steps and see if the view is a little bit better from there. I think that's the big one. And there's a whole ton others, but you know, maybe one other I'll throw out there is what I've noticed is that 
really great entrepreneurs have this weird ability to kind of almost intuitively know what are the one or two critical things they have to focus on to make the business go. I mean, and this is, don't forget, startups are notoriously under-resourced. There's a hundred things broken. You just don't have the bandwidth to do all of them. And so your ability to kind of sense that, okay, these will fix themselves. These are going to be screwed up no matter what I do. But if I focus on this one or two, I can really change the game. And then have this ability to put the blinders on and focus on them. And it's a really bizarre kind of set of skills. But it just seems to be one of the things that keeps coming up over and over and over again, not just in the things I've done, but in the work I've done in the last 15 years of working with, you know, hundreds of other entrepreneurs and scores of other startups. Question for you, Mark. I know that, you know, you didn't get the idea from Netflix because you got the, like you had wanted to start a business and you and Reed Hastings were brainstorming all the different types of businesses that you could start. So could you shed some more color in terms of the process that you guys took to come up with those ideas and some of the ideas that you threw out and how you kind of decided that you were going to go ahead and start off with, with this Netflix idea and continue on with it? Like, how did you decide that was the idea you were going to choose? So the first thing you kind of have to understand is that I'm, I'm going to say I'm not, I kind of still not, but I certainly wasn't a movie guy. So this did not spring forth from some deep passion about cinema. I didn't even call it cinema. I was just kind of a, a startup guy in general. You know, when the company that I was working for, the company that Reed Hastings had founded and was running... Uh, that I had joined when he bought one of my companies. When that was being in turn acquired, both of us were kind of going to be out of work, and it was kind of what's next. And for me, it was let's start a company. Uh, Reed was going to go back to school, but of course wanted to keep a hand in. So we had this kind of natural thing about, okay, what next? And for anyone who's done that, it's one of the most fun things in the world is to brainstorm Okay, what should we do? What could a cool business to start be? And listen, you do that all the time. You don't have no intention of starting it. It's such a fun intellectual game. But in our case, we were kind of playing it for real. And the way this would work is Reed and I used to commute to work together. And every morning when he picked me up, I got in the car and I'd be ready. And I'd go, okay, here we go. Here's today's pitch. And I would lay one out for him. And again, these were not music ones. They had some common denominators. They were all about e-commerce. They were all about personalization. They were all about things that I was already interested in. But otherwise, they were all over the place. I mean, I think we talked on, on your show about the, you know, one of them was personalized shampoo by mail. Another one was custom dog food. Uh, another one was uh, personalized sporting goods that were made one of a kind, exactly your specifications. But this process was almost identical each time. So I'd do this pitch, and then Reed'd be driving, and he wouldn't say anything. He'd just be looking out the window. And maybe a minute would go by, and then maybe a minute and a half, two minutes. But, you know, I'd be patient. I know what's coming. And then finally, maybe three minutes in, he'd turn and go, okay, that will never work. And then, boom, in goes this brilliant dissertation and dissection of the idea. You know, why the market's wrong, it's too complicated, whatever. A million, and then I, you know, I'm no baby. I launch right back at him. I've done my research. Here's the numbers. Here's what will work. And we would just beat this thing up together during these 40-minute commutes. And 
we would just do that day after day after day, trying to find one which would at least survive the initial intellectual attack. And one of them was, of course, this idea of doing video rental by mail. I had my whole previous first career was in direct marketing, um, and I had done a, two catalog companies. And I certainly knew all about shipping stuff all over the world. And I was going, this could be a way for us to actually attack Blockbuster. But it was VHS and it wouldn't work. So that got abandoned too. And the breakthrough for us, which led to us deciding to actually do something, was when we heard about the DVD, which we realized was thin enough and light enough and small enough that we might be able to actually use the U.S. mail rather than having to use FedEx or DHL or UPS. And uh, then we did that classic, as we were talking about earlier in the room, you know, with the think, do more, think less. And just said, rather than going working on a business plan or debating this further, let's just find out whether, in fact, this works or not. And we went and uh, wanted to mail a DVD to read. We couldn't find a DVD because they were in test market. So he settled for mailing a used music CD to his house. And when that got to his house in less than a day for the price of a stamp, that kind of was an, all we really needed to say, okay, this actually might work. Let's give it a shot. I love the fact that you didn't waste time on a business plan. You didn't spend weeks kind of, you know, drafting everything out and studying the market. You took action and just mailed yourself a music CD and was like, okay, this actually works. Let's just give it a try. And, and you just did something. And that taught you a lot more than a business plan would have because you just got to see if it worked or not. I want to talk about Yancey's philosophy of bentoism. And I think this is going to be a great conversation between you two because I'm thinking that you guys might have different perspectives. So Yancey, you wrote a book called This Could Be Our Future. It's all about bentoism, which is a philosophy that you created that really tries to help move the world away from the idea of financial maximization, where businesses really revolve around making profit, to businesses that are led by deeper values. And so as tech advances and, you know, the field is getting level with more platforms like Kickstarter in terms of funding, I think it's getting easier and easier to launch a business. So I'd love for you to kind of explain what bentoism is so that everybody's on the same page. It's kind of a new phrase that's out there right now. Explain what bentoism is and then maybe talk about some of the values you would like future startups to have when it comes to starting a business and what you think those values should be. And then I'd love to hear Mark's thoughts about bentoism and things like that. So Yancey, let's kick it off. Let's give some context around bentoism. Let's do it. I'm eagerly rubbing my hands together. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so the bento is a, a very simple idea uh, that I came up with. It's, it's an acronym, bento, for beyond near-term orientation. And it's a very simple framework, a two-by-two matrix that helps you see the full picture of any situation. And these four boxes start with now me is the box in the bottom left, what each of us as individuals want to need at any given moment. And this is the part of us that wants to feel safe and secure, that you know has desires, that uh, has a desire for, say, wealth or to be loved. So we all have this now me part. And the bottom right, we have our future me, the person we are trying to become. You know, that future me becomes, you know, the person we want or don't want based on the choices we make at any given moment. In the top left box of this two-by-two two is now us, so the people in our lives who we care about and care about us. Our decisions affect them just as theirs affect us. And in the top right is future us, thinking about the world our kids will inhabit and everyone else's kids too. 
And so this very simple four boxes of now me, future me, now us, future us, is a map to really the impact of every choice we make. Every decision leaves a footprint in all these spaces. But the issue that most of us have and that we struggle with is that we really have a very limited self-awareness beyond this now me space. We know what it is that we want right now. Maybe we can see like a week ahead. But for many of us, you know, really thinking about the future implications of our decisions is really cloudy. And most of us fail to think about the key people in our lives as much as we should. And so the bento is just a very simple tool, this simple two-by-two matrix that is a, a user interface, a way to make decisions to have all those spaces in mind. Now, what this leads to and what you were getting to, Hala, is that once you start to see all these dimensions, the values that are important to you begin to change a little bit. Because while it is important to now me that, say, we're getting paid, we feel safe, we feel secure, you know, our future me voice, they're thinking more about what kind of legacy are you going to live? What does the ideal version of you look like? How do you make decisions that are building to something you're really going to be proud of? You know, your now us is saying, what are those core relationships in your life and, and how healthy are they? And how much are you really giving to the people that need you? And how much do they give you? Like, how good is that part of your life really? And then future us, you know, for whatever you're doing right now, like, what is this going to mean for your kids or the rest of the world if you keep acting the way that you are? And so this just becomes a way that all these spaces become just very active in your decision making. Um, and so the Bento method is a way of seeing your organizational decisions or your personal decisions through these lenses. And what it does, it just widens the frame. For you as a company, it means a good choice isn't just the one that satisfies like what'll hit our Q1 goals. It's also what's the one that will satisfy like our brand ideal, this thing that we say we want to be or that we are. What, what's the choice that company makes? You know, how do we think like a future me? Or if we're launching a new product to our customers, how do we do it really seeing them as like a core part of our constituency and people who have certain expectations or promises that, that, that we've made to them? Um, and then how does this decision contribute to this ultimate vision, this futurist vision that every company is working towards, like Microsoft's putting a computer on every desktop? And so these are things that are present in our lives, are present in our companies. And the bento and the bento method is a way that that becomes very literal and very actionable. And, and it doesn't make it that money doesn't matter or that short-term decisions are wrong. It simply puts them in a larger context. And I think what it ends up showing are the choices that produce not just the outcomes we might want in this moment, but that are also leading us towards this ultimate destination. So to me, it's just an, a tool that extends our awareness and extends our self-interest, both individually or as a group, and then just helps us make more consistent decisions seeing that bigger picture. And now a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. 
In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Awesome breakdown of bentoism. So Mark, I'm going to throw it over to you. I'm not sure if this is the first time you've heard of bentoism, but what's your thoughts around the belief that any decision, right or wrong, when it comes to business is all about making more money, making more profits? Like, What are your thoughts about the values outside of just profiting in business? First of all, I am familiar with Bentuism. I mean, not intimately, but I certainly have seen this represented. I didn't even know. I, now I'm meeting the orig- originator of it, which is pretty cool. And listen, what's possibly could be said against that about being more aware of how the decisions you make are impacting not just you and your company, but the rest of the world, and not just now, but in the future? It's a, a wonderful framework for things. And I'll certainly go on record in saying that I've never believed that the sole purpose is economic gain, certainly not individually. In fact, I spend so much time lately really trying to dispel that myth that that's what entrepreneurship is all about. 
trying to fight against all of this cultural imprinting that the reason you should do this is because you can be rich or famous or whatever the media is communicating about what entrepreneurship is. It's much more a personal fulfillment job. So the challenging thing is, and these are all, these, all this sounds great, but the question really is, how does a founder put these things into action? And it's really why I counsel so many people that you have to be so deliberate at the beginning about how you set expectations for yourself, for your company, and for your partners. And I'll just give you a simple example. I tend right now, you know, actually having Yancey on is the perfect counterpart to this. I mean, there's certainly many, many ways to raise money to try and support your dream. It turns out that most of the time for the companies that I'm involved with, venture works great. There's certain aspects to it that I'm very familiar with. I know how to use it. Most of my companies are venture-backed. The problem is that if you come in and say, I have this vision for what I want my company to be, it's mission-driven. But you're not clear with your investors that that's what the purpose of your company is. You're going to have a problem. And that's what I think creates so much conflict. Because if you go to a classic venture investor, not necessarily a social impact investor, but a classic venture investor, and they're going to invest in your company, they're not doing so because, oh, wouldn't it be great to support Mark's dream? No, they're going to give you money and they expect it back. And ideally, they expect it back times 100. And once you accept that money, you have an obligation to do what you can to make that happen. And that's where you begin having this collision between what you may want, what you may feel is right, and what you feel this obligation is to the partner who you've brought into your project on with certain expectations. I want to get into failure. So Malcolm has got a question on failure. I'd love to hear your question for the panel. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Hala. So yeah, basically, I uh, was I was doing a company, and I've just gone through the process of dissolving it after working three years on it. And it definitely still burns like hell. And I found it helpful to reflect on kind of things I learned from there and like jotting them down before I kind of pivot to something totally different. So I was wondering, you know, what is the one biggest lesson that you guys have learned from failure in a past company? I think I've learned more, more than once that and it's the same with the relationship, but that everything in the beginning is material. You know, how how things start, what those initial conversations are like, what what expectations are set, you know, conversations that might not seem meaningful often echo for a long time. So I think a, really just how, how you start, you really can't be too deliberate, which is something Mark said. The other place where I've just seen you know, I've just seen a lot of people run out of steam. You hit levels of burnout. I've certainly gotten there. Even if like a company may succeed, certainly I think everyone will experience that personal feeling of like, do I have more to give to this? But to me, a lot of the die is cast with how, how things start. I'm curious what you would say, Mark. I think probably the single most frequent question I get asked is, how do I know when to give up? And the answer usually is you don't give up. You get forced out. <laughs> I don't mean forced out of the company. In other words, you just can't raise that last round of money. Something goes wrong, and all of a sudden you're done, and it's with a, with a whimper, not a bang. 
And I've never really had to wind anything down. Uh, and to me, the the ones that were the closest were the ones we recognize we're not going to make it. And it could be just because, oh, it's a great idea, but it's too soon, or I just don't have enough money, or I made some fundamental error too early on. But more likely, what usually happens is this is the very nature of starting companies. You're starting things, and you're requiring three or four dependencies in a row to go your way. You know, Netflix, if if the DVD hadn't achieved, achieved widespread household um, adoption, if it had gone the way the laser disc, I we wouldn't be I wouldn't be on this call uh, today. So certain things have to break your way, and sometimes they don't. Other times, you go shooting up in the stratosphere, only to realize uh, there's no one nowhere else to go. So in other words, and then you're kind of saying I'm gonna I'm gonna navigate the soft landing. But uh, you're right; it's not a pretty thing, but it's part of it. And I don't, in my opinion, it kind of just gives you this opportunity to move on to uh, to the next one. Awesome. Malcolm, that was a great question. So we're talking about failure right now. And actually, the number one reason startups fail, 42% of startups fail because they offer products or services that the market doesn't need. So basically, there's no product market fit. So I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts around how do we determine a product that really has demand? How can we test that idea before we actually get too far down the line? Because a lot of the times we have a great idea. We think it's going to do great. Technically, we can do it. We have the funding, but then there's no demand. And then, you know, that's the number one reason why startups fail. So anyone want to kick that off first? I'll go first on this one, I guess. I hear a gazillion pitches, I, a lot, even from existing companies. And the worst scenario is the company who has a, a solution in search of a problem. They have this product. It's the best product. But now they're frantically searching for someone who has a problem that needs it. And that is just a, the kiss of death. And it's just so much stronger to reverse things and to start by really understanding what problem it is you're trying to solve and deeply understanding who has that problem and in what circumstances and who else is trying to solve that problem. Because then you really have a very, very focused search for what your solution is going to be. And so much of what I work with the earlier stage companies on is these methodologies to try and validate their ideas. And I, I don't mean minimal viable product stuff, because even that, I believe, is building way too much. It's being able to take the concept and figuring out how to isolate the one component that's your true question and figure out how to hit that off the person who you think has this problem. Um, I certainly know that you can get to a point where you don't have product market fit. I'm just not, I'm not but I'm just saying if you say, if you're stuck there's one thing to go, I really understand this problem and I can't find the right product for it. But it's inexcusable if you have the right product and you can't find anyone who wants it. Mm, I love that. Go ahead, Yancy. Yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, that was all great. And I, I would just build on that. Yeah, especially early on, I think you want to be building for an actual customer and not an imagined customer. There might be that person that you think out there that has all these needs, that wants all these feature sets. But if you don't, if you don't actually know that, if you haven't had conversation uh, more than once, then I think you, you might be tricking yourself. And that, and that leads to what I think is, is also a step that people kind of skip or overlook. It's, but learning how to explain your idea in a way that other people connect with it, that they are excited by it, 
that on its own tells you a lot, can tell you a lot about what your product actually is. So for us, you know, when we're artists trying to pitch people on Kickstarter and we're, we're struggling to get our, our demo done, that led to having to have conversations about this over and over for multiple years, trying to explain the idea of crowdfunding before anyone knew what it was. And as painful as that process often was, it was incredible for letting you know how to talk about something and ha- letting you know what's actually interesting about your idea. Because you do that enough and then you see the moment that people's eyes glaze over because you're boring them or you're becoming too complicated. And, and you learn to learn to tighten and you learn what it is that, that people are really excited by. And that, I think, can be like a pre-MVP process of just, can I, can I tell a story that lets people see this and get excited by it? And, you know, that's, that's a lot of the hurdle of, of getting people to care about a startup. I want to add one thing to this. I loved when you said, build it for a real person rather than an imaginary one. Um, And I'm going to go further. I'm going to say build it for one, not for many. Don't have this huge audience of people who you're envisioning this works for. It's so powerful. If you can say, I have one person that I can get to do this rather than a hundred people who are all have slightly different needs and desires. It's kind of that, that strategy that says that you define your market uh, by its center, not by its boundaries. You pick the ideal persona where you know their name, their hobbies, how old they are, where they live, what they do, what they're struggling with, and you're building it for them. It's just a really nice way to focus your product management and product development efforts. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify Magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. 
Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea. And then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. So earlier in this conversation, we were talking about when is it the right time to kind of throw in the towel and kind of close shop that this was a failure and and move on. And I think being a good entrepreneur is knowing when to quit, but there's this buzzword that everybody always says pivoting, you know, and I know Mark Netflix started as a direct mail service, mailing DVDs, and then you guys pivoted to streaming. So pivoting is, like I said, a really hot word these days, especially in COVID or post COVID. So how do you know if you need to close your business or if you need to just pivot? Like what is that decision-making process like? And maybe let's start with Mark since you did it with Netflix. (laughs) Well, you would only close your business if you couldn't pivot. I mean, certainly the very first thing you're trying to do is if what you're doing is not working, is try and move to something that's going to work better. But I wanted to spell it, you know, pivoting isn't always necessarily, it's not a defensive position. It's an offensive position too. And the reason people sometimes think that it's this defensive thing, that it's what you do when it's not working, is because, as I, I mentioned to the person who asked the question a few minutes ago, it's because They see what needs to happen, but doing that is going to impact their current business. In other words, it's not a question of just doing something on the side, but the very act of doing the thing they can clearly see as the future undermines their existing business. And if I, let me take two seconds, give me a quick example of what I'm talking about. So as a company I worked with, which was a large manufacturer, it sold through multi-step distribution. They sold to distributors, and they had very high-priced salesmen selling to distributors. And distributors sold to retailers, retailers to end users. Price got stepped up all along the way, but it was this dominant product. It had like 80% market share, and they were raking in the money. And then, of course, what happens is all of a sudden someone develops a product pretty similar and begins selling direct. It's about half or less the price and begins taking very small amounts of market share because they have no brand. The other guys have the dominant brand. So the CEO, is, you know, she's an intelligent person. She goes, I see what's happening. This is easy. We'll start our own little direct consumer division. We'll head this off the pass with our, our marketing strength, our product strength, our brand strength. But of course, the minute the word gets out, they're thinking of selling direct, they get the call from the big distributors who go, whoa, you're going to compete with me? Well, no, thank you. I'm going to drop the line. And their $900,000 a year salesperson goes, oh, you're going to make my job harder by competing with us? I quit. 
And then, of course, now the decision is not, do I do the right thing? The question is, do I pursue this direct business, which is going to represent, in a good case, 5% of my revenue, and dump my main core business by 20 to 30%? And on one hand, direct is the future. But it's a really hard thing to do, because you have to go to your shareholders, if you're public, it's even worse, and say, we're going to have down quarters, four or five quarters in a row, while we transition this business to direct. And that is why you pivot as a proactive step. And for example, I'm sorry I'm rambling on here, but you got, you got me on a really good one, is that you look at, at the beginning, you know, Netflix was renting and selling and we were 98% sales. We couldn't figure out how to rent. And the problem with that was not just, oh, we can't get rental going, is that when you try and do both at the same time, it's really hard. You've got to pick one. And we go, the future is going to be renting. Sales is commoditized. We're going to lose to Amazon. So we're going to walk away from 98% of the revenue to focus on that. Same thing happens when st- streaming comes along. It's hard to do both. The future, though, is streaming. So you're willing to walk away from your DVD disc business and trash your numbers to invest everything you have in getting streaming right. And companies that don't do that, either because they're unwilling or unable or scared, um, just leave it wide open for someone else to come in and take that share. The pivot has to be an offensive move, not a defensive one. Oh, I love everything that you said, Mark. How much or how little should we pay attention to the competition? Like when you guys were at Kickstarter and Netflix, were you studying the competition like crazy and like assigning people to kind of spy on the competition? Or were you guys kind of just operating and doing your own thing and not paying attention to your competition? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Whoever wants to kick it off first. I focused on the customer. You know, I focused on creators and I was always very aware of what all tools our, our creators were using, you know, because a creator has a lot of different things they have to do. So I always wanted to know what their toolkit was about, but that wasn't specifically thinking about the competition angle. I always felt like time spent talking about competition was just, it, it's, it's defocusing you from your own story. And if we're doing our thing right, like most markets can have room for multiple players if, if you're smart about how you're focused and, uh, and how you execute. So, you know, for us, we would have the team, especially sales-related people, would have to focus a lot on competition because they might be in some one-on-one sales scenarios. But overall, I, I always felt like it was to the detriment of the company. I could see that. Mark, what are your thoughts on this? I entirely agree. I think that in, certainly in some scenarios, you have to be cognizant of the, what the competition offers, uh, largely in, in ensure that you're actually offering something to customers which is not already being offered. You have to be doing something which allows you to differentiate yourself. But you should not be focusing on that and responding to every little move. Your job, at least in an early stage company, which is what I'm familiar with, is entirely about delighting your customers. All the rest can wait. You need to, at the beginning, just delight the customer and uh, everything else will follow from that. Makes sense. Okay, guys, we're going to start the Q&A. So Elizabeth, I love your question. I think it's really relevant. Please ask your question to the panel. 
Sure thing. Thank you so much for this room. This has been such an intriguing conversation. So my question is, how do you deal with people who just don't get your startup idea? And how did you push through the naysayers in the early stages? My startup idea came from my own lived experience, being a patient, being misdiagnosed, which almost led to my death. And the solution that quite literally saved my life is a scalable solution to crowdsource health solutions. But communicating this to people who've just never been in my shoes or have never been sick just don't get it. But our customers are fervent believers. But people who've just never been sick, like investors, a lot of people that I'm talking to in the startup world, they don't really get it. So how do you bridge that gap when you know that your solution can really save someone's life? It's We have strong believers, strong customers, but people who've never lived that experience, like how do you bridge, do you have any recommendations on bridging that gap? Thank you. I don't know that you can, uh, but I think it could be that those people who have had the same experience are going to be your believers. And that's where things start. You know, nothing's going to start with everybody loving it. And they're just, it's just never going to work that way. But can you find, you know, those 10 people, those however many people who do connect that one investor who did go through hell. And honestly, that's all it takes. If people don't get your story, it's, it's hard to sway them. Honestly, it, it probably takes it until their personal life, like, requires them to realize it, to have that same depth of feeling. But that's okay. You don't need everybody to be a customer day one. You, you just need to find those, those people who do feel it, and they will be there. I'm not sure about how to bring customers along. I would probably agree with Yancy. You, you, you can't. You've got to find the person for whom your solution resonates. But certainly if you're pitching your idea to potential employees or if you're pitching it to potential partnerships or you're pitching it to potential investors, I may be a minority in this, but I just don't believe in ideas. I don't believe in your idea. I don't even know what it is. Every idea is wrong. Almost no company, no company, maybe present company except with the NC, uh, is successful doing what their original idea was, which is why getting someone to believe in the original idea doesn't really make a difference. And it's kind of the same answer I had before when I was talking about the fundraising piece of it, which is that the thing to do is to prove it to people. And I work with a lot of people who are business side, marketing side, and they're trying to confined engineer to build their idea for them. And I go, you are just wasting your time. You're never going to find that. It's just way too hard. I say the best thing you can do is figure out a way to demonstrate that what you're talking about is real by actually doing it in a non-repeatable, non-scalable way. And then what happens is when you show them what you're working on, they will be drawn in. They'll go, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. You're actually, it's actually working and you're doing it in this completely crazy manual way. Maybe we could. And then they're in. Um, people believe in things that are working. And sometimes you just have to kickstart, if you'll pardon using the term, kickstart things yourself. Elizabeth, was that helpful? Oh, yeah, this was extremely helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your question and good luck on your entrepreneurship journey. Okay, so we are running up on time. I want to be respectful of time. So Yancy, Mark, I'm going to ask you guys your last question. And I love to leave all of these episodes on a high note. And so I want to know, what is your one piece of advice that you would give a new entrepreneur? Maybe somebody who's scared of taking the leap. They're in a corporate job. They're, you know, they have this security blanket of their corporate job and they have a great idea. They feel like it has product market fit. They feel like they can handle it. 
but they're just scared. They're scared of going out on their own and taking that leap. What are the words of encouragement that you would give them? Let's start off with Yancey and then go to Mark and then we can close out. Entrepreneurship is just like the the pro-level path to personal actualization. The level of maturity you will have to develop, the, the hard conversations you'll be forced to have, the ways you'll you'll be forced to confront your weaknesses, but also to discover these strengths that you have. It's ultimately just going to turn you in to a wonderful person. It's going to be painful. It's going to take some time, but I really feel like it's just an acceleration of, of self-understanding that will just benefit you for the rest of your life, even regardless of what happens for the business itself. I love that. Mark, what are your thoughts? I got to write that one down. The pro-level path to personal actualization. I love that. I think that if you're lucky in your life, you get to do these two important things. You get to do the things you're good at and you get to do the things you like. And if you're feeling that being an entrepreneur, being a founder, doing your own company is going to give you that level of fulfillment, then life is too short not to go for it. There are huge, many, many, many ways now to do all this stuff that mitigates so much of the risk. Don't quit your day job. Don't mortgage your house. Don't pull your kids out of school uh, and begin feeding dog food to save money. You know, there are ways to take this idea you're so sure will work that has product market fit and increment your way in. And you can always stop. Nothing is irreversible. If it works, if you like it, it is the most incredible way to spend your time. I, it's, <laughs> I have absolutely, I've, I'm actualized. I couldn't be happier. I've had the best possible uh, life I could. And it's all come from being able to spend my day sitting down with really smart people, solving really interesting problems. And it's hard to imagine someone not also wanting to do that too. But good luck with it. 